Tell me what's that for? Sleep. You happy with what you're getting? There's a guy who's been awake since the Second World War. Sleep. Well, you're never gonna get it. Sleep. Tell me what's that for? Sleep. You happy with what you're getting? There's a guy who's been awake since the Second World War. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this one, guys, is a big one for me. This week, I review a novel that is often ridiculed and pointed to as his worst story, one that I happen to love. In fact, would rank it as one of my favorites. It's a novel full of rich imagery, with King's imagination bearing down upon the reader like a runaway train, perhaps an insane sentient train from another world. That's a deep SK reference, everybody. Um, that goes to very cosmic places. But like any of Stephen King's best, it's always rooted in the mundane and the everyday. In short, many people will joke that this novel is the antidote for the title itself, which is unfair because, like I said, this novel is in an incredible glimpse into a mind of an author who opens to us his toy chest-like imagination and lets his ideas run wild. The novel, of course, is 1994's Insomnia. Look, when it comes to the criticism against this novel, I just don't get it. I don't get it at all. It's a novel that includes people seeing auras due to the very real and relatable condition of insomnia, something that we've all experienced at least as a one-off, if not a chronic problem. So he grounds it with something so relatable. And with our feet on the ground, he lets his story float to the sky like the auras from his characters themselves. Because in this novel, he isn't just content with having his main character see auras, but he also repurposes Greek mythology to fit his own mythology. The mythology he had begun to establish when he was 19 years old, when he began writing The Gunslinger. Whereas the three fates from Greek mythology have always been represented as three women on different ages, here we have three little bald doctors two wielding scissors to snip the auras that float above each and every person in the world, and one rogue doctor wielding a rusty blade. It's a fun and crazy twist, and that's just the beginning. Now you might have noticed that I just mentioned the gunslinger here, and that's right. This novel, while not starring the gunslinger, is a Dark Tower novel. In fact, it's just as important to the Dark Tower series as any of the ones starring Roland Deschain because this is the first time we are introduced to the big bad of the Stephen King universe, the Crimson King, who sets his eyes on the little city of Derry, Maine, the setting of King's most famous horror novel, It. Yeah, not only do we head back to King's most famous city, but we finally meet the threat to the Dark Tower, the reason why the gunslinger must reach it, the villain that is so powerful he watches the lives of the people in the multiverse like channels on a television screen, and his name is the Crimson King. That is so comic booky. What's not to love about that? One more thing. Did you love It? You know I did. Here's the thing. You know, I mentioned Derry, but one more thing that we should know about this is Insomnia is the sequel to it. It's not a direct sequel, of course, and okay, maybe sequel isn't the right word. Maybe companion piece is more like it. Regardless, these two novels are thematically intertwined. It was about the complexities and the magic of childhood, and Insomnia is about the complexities and the magic of aging. One is the story that captured childhood and adulthood, and this one captures old age. 
So with these two novels, King has explored every facet of aging in our lives set against the backdrop of this one town. And plus, there are shout-outs galore that make it a fun reading experience if you love it. With Insomnia, King begins to let his imagination run free. This novel begins a series of high-concept novels that includes Rose Matter, Desperation, The Regulators, and Wizard in Glass. I suppose that during this phase, King emphasized the supernatural over the horror. So for people looking for a terrifying thrill ride like The Shining, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. There's still moments of fear, but I really wouldn't classify this phase as a horror phase, and I wouldn't classify Insomnia as a horror novel. Before, he examined and reimagined familiar tropes, the haunted house, ghosts, vampires. But here, he's more interested in a bigger picture. And though the series, I'm sorry, the, the next series of villains in this phase aren't as memorable to the general audience as his earlier villains, I like these guys more because they're so imaginative. One way of looking at it is if Jack Torrance from The Shining was the Joker or the Green Goblin of his villain collection, then with the Crimson King, Atropos, and Desperation's Tack, he creates his own Apocalypse or Thanos or Galactus. He widens the scale for his boogeymen, and they do not disappoint. I think that this type of high-level imagination began with it. And I think a lot of people who don't like the ending to that novel will tend to dislike Insomnia and the upcoming stories in this phase as well. I mean, the end of that book is insane, guys, with our characters going to a separate universe that's beyond our universe, a universe that also happens to be the villain, but the villain also exists within our universe, but is also trapped outside this universe. And I can see people saying, what the hell am I reading? I thought I was reading a story about a killer clown, but all of a sudden the clown isn't a clown. The clown is really a spider, but not a spider, but a creature that's so alien that the closest approximation is a spider and a universe in of itself. You know, th that I can understand if you're looking for one thing and you get something completely different, something that's so high level. You know, that I guess I can understand. But for me, it's right up my alley. You know, but I also understand that for people looking for straight up horror, that you might be disappointed. So, with a return to Derry, major connections to the Dark Tower, crazy cosmic imagery, an evil lair under a twisted tree, and two incredibly villainous new monsters in the Stephen King universe, it's like Stephen King wrote Insomnia just for me. So I've mentioned the Dark Tower, and maybe this is why Insomnia is, you know, I won't say reviled, but maybe criticized as much as it is. For Stephen King Uber fans like myself, the Dark Tower series is the linchpin that holds everything together, much in the same way that the Dark Tower itself holds all of the multiverse together. But for anyone that doesn't like the Dark Tower or never bothered getting into it, I guess I can understand why Insomnia will be a little off-putting because this novel is crazy, crazy good. And for me, this was, this was the first new novel that I experienced from Stephen King after having gotten into him. Nightmares and Dreamscapes uh, was the first new publication of a Stephen King book for me, but Insomnia was the first new novel. In my review of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, I explained that I was a little disappointed in the fact that it was a collection of short stories and I had wanted a novel. 
Well, this is the novel that I was waiting for. I was ready. I was pumped and primed. And I remember distinctly going to the grocery store that autumn afternoon and seeing the shelf a very underwhelming covers of this novel staring at me. Now, while I might have been put off by the lameness of the cover, holding this new book in my hand was everything. I raced home and immediately began reading. Being a tower junkie at that point tipped the novel from good to great. Like I said, King was writing this just for me. I love when King gets fan servicey, and this novel is a great example of this style of writing. Like I said in my review of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, this era of King is marked by big ideas and imagination gone wild. Insomnia is definitely one of his crazier novels, and he follows it up with Rose Matter, Desperation, The Regulators, The Green Mile, Wizard and Glass. There is just so much imagery and concepts to soak up from these stories. It's unbelievable, and I've been looking forward to getting to this review. I am so pumped that we are here, and I cannot wait to start to dive in deeply to this book and convince you if you have not liked Insomnia, I will tell you why you should like Insomnia, because this is definitely one of King's best. So before I get into the review itself, guys, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary, so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Ralph Roberts, a retired widower, begins to suffer from insomnia. As his condition worsens, Ralph begins to see things that are invisible and intangible to others, colorful manifestations of life force surrounding people and diminutive, white-coated beings he calls little bald doctors based on their appearance. Roberts perceives other planes of reality and their influence upon the real world. He finds that his sweetheart, Lois Chasse, is also a sufferer. They eventually discover that their insomnia has been induced by the two little bald doctors to help them defeat agents of the Crimson King. Ralph and Lois name the two good doctors Clotho, which means destiny, and Lachesis, or Lachesis. I don't really know how to pronounce it, but I'm going to go with Lachesis because that's what I've always pronounced it as. While the third bad doctor is called Atropos, which means random murder. They are all named after the Morai of Greek mythology. Ralph overcomes Atropos and forces him to promise to stay out of their business, the doctors all being bound by their word. However, Atropos has his revenge by showing Ralph a glimpse of the not-too-distant future in which he claims the life of the innocent Natalie Deepno. Ralph is able to counterbalance this, however, by striking a deal with Clotho and Lachesis, whereby he trades his own life for Natalie's. Meanwhile, Ed Deepno, Natalie's father and Ralph's neighbor, falls under the control of the Crimson King. Deepno attempts to crash a light plane containing explosives into the Derry Civic Center during a heavily attended rally. Ralph and Lois realize that the Crimson King is using Deepno to kill a small boy named Patrick Danville, the focus of a prophecy concerning the salvation of the Dark Tower. Patrick Danville cannot, for undisclosed reasons, be killed directly by anyone born under either the Random or the Purpose. However, from time to time, a being is born who is undesignated, an undesignated person is described as being like a blank card, aka a joker, and is up for grabs by either side. Deepno is one such person, the fact, in fact the only person on earth at that time of undesignated status. 
Ralph defeats the king and forces the light plane to crash into the parking lot, killing Deepno and sparing Danville's life, allowing him to fulfill his destiny and setting the path for the Dark Tower series. The story ends on a tragic note as Ralph, to uphold his bargain with Clotho and Lachesis, is hit and killed by a car to prevent Natalie Deepno from being killed in his place. The story closes on the remark that Ralph is finally able to rest. Analysis. Prologue. Winding the Death Watch. Now this might be King's most depressing opening. There's no hook other than the character work and no evidence of the supernatural. It's simply the sad state of the life of Ralph Roberts who doesn't know how to accept the fact that his wife is going to die. It's just a description of an older man walking around his city during a heat wave, a description that reminds us of the geography for Derry and introduces us to Ralph. After our introduction to Ralph out of the way, King begins to plant the seeds for the rest of the story, introducing Ed Deepno and really laying it on that something is wrong with him. Because the novel doesn't open with the premise or a supernatural hook, this is going to drive the first mystery. What's wrong with Ed? At 10 pages in, Ralph witnesses a car crash. This will come around full circle, so we have symmetry with the novel's beginning and ending, much in the same way that it begins with Ralph walking around depressed knowing that his wife is going to die, and it ends with Ralph walking around depressed knowing that he is going to die. With Ed, King can begin to really lay the groundwork for the novel. The car crash reveals a strange and furious Ed Deepno, and King builds the tension through the building of the storm clouds thundering overhead. While it might seem like your typical lightning show in a horror story, there's a little bit more to it than that. The giant, uncontrollable forces above the people below is really what this novel is all about, and the novel telegraphs that with this weather. Dorrance Marsteller, the 90-year-old, tells Ralph that he should get away from Ed because he can't see his hands. Another mystery has been handed to us. Along with Ed's ranting about dead babies, what he was doing in the airport in the first place, what was on that scarf with the Chinese lettering on it, there's enough in play for us to keep on reading. Part 1, Little Bald Doctors An introductory sentence could very easily have functioned as the opening to the novel itself. About a month after the death of his wife, Ralph Roberts began to suffer from insomnia for the first time in his life. Maybe it was as if King wanted us to feel the death more and plant some of those mystery bombs, so he wrote the prologue. Um, who knows? I do know that King expertly details the encroaching sleeplessness in Ralph's life. For a novel entitled Insomnia, he does not waste much time getting to it. What's fun about this book is, although it takes place in Derry, we meet an entirely new cast of characters. Sure, the events of it are referenced, but in such a way that anyone living in the same city would reference those events. The narrative begins to open up, and despite the places it'll go, King continues to ground it in the recognizable daily life. In this instance, Ralph becomes stuck in the middle of an ideological war between two dairy store owners, one on the side of Susan Day and the other against Susan Day. And as for Susan Day, she's a popular women's rights activist that many of the townspeople are against due to her belief in abortion. Ralph is asked to sign a petition to bring her to town, and he declines, saying that he doesn't like to become involved. He doesn't necessarily agree or disagree one way or another, but he doesn't like getting caught up in controversial topics, which is such a normal slice of life. 
and it mirrors his ultimate role later in the story as he will be caught within the war between the purpose and the random. King also presents the murky waters of domestic abuse. This isn't to say that he presents domestic abuse as anything other than wrong, but Ralph struggles with calling 911 when Helen asks him not to because of the uncertainty of the help that it will bring and how it could, in fact, make things worse. But I'll get to that later. Soon after, we're introduced to Lois. And King immediately teases the possibility of a relationship between the widow and the widower. Now, thankfully, I've always said that I have the supernatural powers of a cat, okay? Um, meaning I can shut off and go to sleep whenever and wherever I want. Sure, there have been a couple nights here and there when, for whatever reason, I just can't get any sleep. And at one point during the, the reread of this book, I found myself having an insomnia again. So, I mean, there, these have been rare occurrences, and I more than make up for it the following night, which becomes a great treat. I go to bed a little bit earlier to get some powerhouse sleeping during the night. So insomnia, the condition, is not something that I've ever had to worry about, thankfully. It's why it's important for King to detail what this must be like, and boy, does he. We witness Ralph's ever-shrinking sleep window and experience the difference between being tired and being sleepy. He's coming to the point where he's never sleepy but always tired, and it really sounds like a hellish existence. After yet another night of sleeplessness, Ralph discovers that Helen Deepno has been beaten severely by her husband, Ed, and Ralph, uncaring of the fact that Ed is decades younger than he, decides to confront him. The confrontation is unpredictable, with Ed being clearly insane, ra raving about King Herod and his fate. And then, on page 85, King gives the first, sorry, first gives name to the big bad, the end boss of his expanded universe, the Crimson King. On page 87, Ed tells Ralph, you can mock, but it's true, he said quietly. It's not King Herod, though, it's the Crimson King. Herod was merely one of his incarnations. The Crimson King jumps from body to body and generation to generation like a kid using stepping stones to cross a brook Ralph, always looking for the Messiah. He's always missed him, but this time could be different because Derry's different. All lines of force have begun to converge here. I will discuss the Crimson King at length in a bonus episode that explores Insomnia's relationship with the Dark Tower series and what Ed's rambling suggests here. But even without Dark Tower knowledge, the ravings of this lunatic are creepy. In the aftermath of Ed's attack in Helen, King begins to tease uh, the threat of supernatural forces at work. Ralph momentarily sees a gray cloud surrounding someone's head, and Bill can't find his hat. Soon after, he sees colorful blue contrails coming off of Lois's fingers and multicolored footprints on the sidewalk. And now, is this why people don't like this book? The entire time I've been rereading it, I'm just really trying to figure out why. Because it's so imaginative. It's so colorful. I, I can't help but love it. The footprints aren't something to celebrate, though. Not right away, at least. Rightfully so, it's something that really freaks Ralph out. We're just over 100 pages in, and while King has teased the supernatural, this is read like a very introspectful, insightful look at the life of one elderly man who's just trying to adjust to a life after the death of his wife. And this perspective is just as captivating as anything having to do with the Crimson King. 
were so fully immersed in Ralph's wonderful world that I completely understand his overwhelming desire to avoid seeing Dr. Litchfield at all costs. After all, the man who potentially could cure Ralph of his insomnia is the same man who misdiagnosed Lois. A misdiag... Sorry, not Lois, but his wife, um... Catherine? Caroline. Caroline, sorry. Um, a misdiagnosis that ultimately led to her death. King captures the frustration, the frustration of not sleeping, the frustration of Litchfield, perfectly, on page 131. Ralph, never much of a patent medicine user, didn't know exactly what he'd expect, but it surely had not been this wild, almost indecent profusion of products. His eye slipped across the boxes, reading the names. Most seemed strange and slightly ominous. Compose, Nitol, Sleepinol, Z-Power, Somonex, Sleepinex, Drowsy. There was even a generic brand. You have to be kidding, he thought. None of these things are going to work for you. It's time to quit effing around, don't you know that? When you start to see colored footprints on the sidewalk, it's time to quit effing around and go to the doctor. But on the heels of this, he heard Dr. Litchfield, heard him so clearly it was as if a tape recorder had turned on in the middle of his head. Your wife is suffering from tension headaches, Ralph. Unpleasant and painful, but not life-threatening. I think we can take care of the problem. Unpleasant and painful, but not life-threatening. Yes, right, that was what the man had said. And when he had reached for his prescription pad and written out the order for the first bunch of useless pills while the tiny clumps of alien cells in Carolyn's head continued to send out its microbursts of destruction, and maybe Dr. Jamal had been right. Maybe it was too late even then, but maybe Jamal was full of it. Maybe Jamal was just a stranger in a strange land trying to get along, trying not to make waves. Maybe this and maybe that. Ralph didn't know for sure and never would. All he would really know was that Litchfield hadn't been around when and the final two tasks of their marriage had been set before them. Her job to die, his job to watch her do it. While at the drugstore, the colors continue to haunt Ralph, and the descriptions are among the most vivid of anything from King's collection. Both Ralph and the reader get a lot of information about insomnia from Joe Wysak, the helpful pharmacist. And after Joe Wysak introduces us to the concept of hyperreality, King allows Ralph to experience this on a full-scale level with a scene filled with incredibly rich imagery on page 150. This was that experience to the 10th power, and the hell of it was simply this. He could not describe exactly what had happened and how the world had changed to make it so wonderful. Things and people, particularly the people, had auras, yes, but that was only where this amazing phenomenon began. Things had never been so brilliant, so utterly and completely there. The cars, the telephone poles, the shopping carts in the cart corral in front of the supermarket, the frame apartment buildings across the street, all these things seemed to pop out at him like 3D images in an old film. All at once, this dingy little strip mall on Witcham Street had become Wonderland, and although Ralph was looking right at it, he was not sure what he was looking at, only that it was rich and gorgeous and fabulously strange. The only thing he could isolate were the auras surrounding people going in and out of the stores, stowing packages in their trunks, or getting their cars and driving away. Some of these auras were brighter than others, but even the dimmest were a hundred times brighter than his first glimpses of the phenomenon. But it was, but it's what Weiser was talking about, no doubt of that. It's hyper-reality, and what you're looking at is no more there than the hallucinations of people who are under the influence of LSD. What you're seeing is just another symptom of your insomnia, no more and no less. Look at it, Ralph, and marvel over it as much as you want. It's marvelous. Just don't believe it. 
and you know i mean he continues it's just this is the beginning of a series of incredible descriptions that capture the sensation of seeing these auras and this new world all around ralph smartly King relates this with a relatable experience in which Ralph had witnessed the everyday magic in a barn. By contrasting the new hyper-reality with the more relatable phenomenon, it makes the auras that much more pronounced. I could read this entire description. It's just that wonderful. And again, King grounds the fantastical with identifiable markers so we don't get too lost in the concept. And the marker in this case is what Ralph describes as balloon strings trailing from the top of each person's head. After a news report of Ed's involvement with the Friends of Life, Ralph, after remembering that Ed has spoken of seeing colors, receives a telephone call from Ed himself, who not only threatens Ralph going full-on villain, but also drops a bomb on the auras. And through Ed, King teases the audience for the events yet to come, on pages 171 to 172 of the hardcover edition. You said you liked me. This is Ed talking. Well, I like you too. I've always liked you. So I'm going to give you some very valuable advice. You're drifting into deep water and there are things swimming around in the undertow you can't even conceive of. You think I'm crazy, but I want to tell you that you don't know what madness is. You don't have the slightest idea. You will, though, if you keep meddling in things that don't concern you. Take my word for it. What things? Ralph asked. He tried to keep his voice light, but he was still squeezing the telephone receiver tight enough to make his fingers throb. Forces, Ed replied. There are forces here at work in Derry that you don't want to know about. They are, well, let's just say... There are entities. They haven't really noticed you yet, but if you keep fooling with me, they will, and you don't want that. Believe me, you don't. I mean, how awesome is that? How does that not want you to keep reading? You know, I've used the word rich when describing the book so far, but I can't help but keep using it. So far, we've seen the auras, and with Ed, we're getting ready for entities, which include the off-mentioned Crimson King and his centurions, but also the little bald doctor. When I read this the first time, my head was spinning, trying to figure out where this novel was going. And even though I didn't know where it was heading, I was loving the journey. And now in my, I don't even know how many rereads it's been, four, maybe this may be my fourth reread. Even though I know where it's going, I still love the journey to this day. During a visit from Helen, when playing with Natalie, Ralph notices that Natalie can also see the auras, confirming that what Ralph is seeing is really real. King then reintroduces us to Dorrance Marsteller, who has more information about the strangest than he's letting on, and though he doesn't spend much time in the book, his appearances pull you in deeper. Ralph takes a visit to our favorite library, where he's nearly killed, and after outwitting his assailant, we have a visit from our favorite librarian, Mike Hanlon, the only loser still in Derry. Seeing Mike is such a welcome treat. After the time spent with it and how fully immersed in the lives of the characters we became, we felt as if we were one of the losers. So to swing, um, so to see Mike again is like seeing an old friend after some time apart. Soon enough, 
King realizes that it's time to start get sorry, it's time to start to get even weirder. Dorrance Marsteller functions as his guardian angel, placing the pepper spray in Ralph's jacket pocket, knowing that he would need it in the library. And then one night, Ralph finally meets the little bald doctors that Ed had mentioned. And the alien quality to them makes the scene so strange and fun. And by alien, I mean extraterrestrial. And if their appearance on Harris Avenue at quarter to two isn't weird enough, Ralph realizes that there's something wrong with them. On page 250, they look stretched, he thought, in the instant before they turned their backs on him. That's what's really bothering me, I think. Not the identical bald heads, the identical white smocks, or even the lack of wrinkles. It's how they look stretched. The eyes just circles, the small pink ears just squiggles made with a felt-tipped pen, the mouths a pair of quick, almost careless strokes of pale pink watercolor. They don't really look either like people or aliens. They just look like hasty representations of, well, I don't know. The mysterious qualities of the novel hit new heights as Ralph tries to discern the relationship between the little bald doctors and the death of May Locker, who appeared to have died from natural causes. And the next day, King introduces one of my favorite villains, who takes a page out of Pennywise's playbook with his distortion of childhood. At first, Ralph thinks that he's watching a child jumping rope, but there's something wrong, and the rhyme that he hears isn't coming from anyone's mouth. The child turns, revealing the character will come to know as Atropos, and points at Ralph and us as if daring the reader to keep going. What's so much fun about the three little doctors here is that with them, King plays with the alien abduction tropes. And although they don't fly in little tin saucers, aren't they the ultimate aliens? Entities from another plane of existence altogether? And like flying saucer, flying saucer mythology, these guys show up in the middle of the night, are bald, have large heads, are short, have a mysterious agenda, and cause Ralph to experience lost time. I totally prefer King writing an alien tale in this manner than the more straightforward approach that he'll wind up taking in Dreamcatcher. Part 2, The Secret City. Just over 300 pages in, in his return to Derry, it's almost as if King smiles and says, Okay guys, I know you want to take a trip down memory lane. So he just jumps right back into the world of children on pages 311 to 312. The dairy of the old Crocs was not the only secret city existing quietly within the place Ralph Roberts had always thought of as home. As a boy growing up in Mary Mead, where the various old Cape housing developments still stood today, Ralph had discovered there was an addition to the dairy that belonged to the grown-ups, one that belonged strictly to the children. There were the abandoned hobo jungles near the railroad depot on Nybolt Street, where one could sometimes find tomato cans, tomato soup cans half full of mulligatawny stew and bottles with a swallow or two of beer left in them. There was the alley behind the Aladdin Theater where Bull Durham cigarettes were smoked and the black cat firecrackers sometimes set off. There was the big old elm which overhung the river where scores of boys and girls had learned to dive. There were the hundreds, or perhaps it was closer to 200, tangled trails winding through the barrens, an overgrown valley which slashed through the center of town like a badly healed scar. These secret streets and highways and hiding were all below the adult's plane of vision, 
and were consequently overlooked by them, although there had been exceptions. One of them had been a cop named Aloysius Nell, Mr. Nell to generations of dairy children, and it was only now as he walked up the picnic area near the place where Harris Avenue became the Harris Avenue Extension that it occurred to Ralph that Chris Nell was probably old Mr. Nell's son. Ralph had become aware of a second secret city, one that belonged to the old folks around the time he retired, but he hadn't fully realized that he himself would a citizen of it until after Carol's death. So, I mean, we get secret cities, and we get a shout-out to, you know, Officer Nell from It, and we just get King acknowledging, hey guys, I know that you love dairy, and if we're going to talk about dairy, let's talk about kids a little bit. It's just, it's perfect. It's stuff like that that just makes it, and it, it already was a great reading experience, but for a Stephen King fan, you get rewarded by being that fan. Uh, so, I mean, the, the this section goes back to what I had said at the top of this podcast about Insomnia being the sequel or a companion piece to It. While it might not star any of the losers uh, hunting a killer clown, the concept that King explores within each book are just too similar to ignore. Just over 300 pages in, King revisits the novel's earliest mystery. What had Ed been doing at the airport when Ralph had first spotted him going crazy? It's now hinted that he's been taking flying lessons, and even without knowing why, King writes this suggestion with dread. Side note, not only has he spaced out this particular mystery perfectly, but with Ed's position as an engineer at a laboratory, King creates a red herring, which is pretty funny when you think about the fact that the main villain is the Crimson King, who later takes the form of a fish. Regardless, I'm sure that Ed's employment status was designed to lead you down a road of prediction that was always meant to lead to a dead end. Soon after, Rosalie, the town dog, is stalked by Atropos. The sight of frightened Rosalie is enough for Ralph to activate his aura vision, because when he sees a frightened Rosie, he knows that she's afraid of something that he can't see, which is again, another example of King taking the little everyday things that are so familiar and weaving a story around them. In this case, it's the pet who reacts to empty air. Now, how many times has this happened to you? And you get goosebumps wondering if your dog or cat is growling at a ghost that you can't detect with your own eyes. Well, that's what's happening here. Ralph wards off Atropos with a magic karate chop and runs into Lois, who admits to suffering insomnia herself. With Lois stepping up to the main stage, King explores the concept of aging that seems authentic, though... I have no way of knowing, really. After her doctor betrays her to her son, and her son doesn't believe that she's in full mental capacity, we see how the power reversal between parents and their children operate. How adults de-age, in a sense, and can gain a vulnerability that otherwise hadn't been there earlier in life. Just take the fear of being forced into retirement home, as written on page 346. I think it sounds like the kind of room you'd find in an enchanted castle, but I've visited quite a few old friends in Strawberry Fields, that's the geriatrics home in Skowhagen, and I know an old folks rec room when I see one. It doesn't matter how pretty a name you give it, there's still a cabinet full of board games in the corner and jigsaw puzzles with five or six pieces missing from each one, and the TV is always tuned to something like Family Feud and never to the kind of movies where good-looking young people take off their clothes and roll around on the floor together in front of the fireplace. Those rooms always smell of paste and piss and the five-and-dime watercolors that come in a long tin box and despair. It's after this, 
when Ralph realizes that Lois has been seeing the auras as well. And as a reader, it makes me so happy for these characters to have found each other. Unfortunately, whatever joy could be had from the shared experience of insomnia and the auras is soon thwarted by the arrival of Atropos wearing Bill McGovern's hat, Lois's earrings, and with his return, we see why he's so dangerous. He cuts Rosie, the dog's balloon string, which speeds up her time on Earth. Rosie will die soon after when Joe Weiser accidentally hits her with her car. What Atropos does with his scalpel isn't to inflict a horrid supernatural death. It's simply a supernatural explanation for the natural order. Rosie dies, as many dogs do. If it wasn't a car, it might just have been old age. The unknown motivations of Doc 3 put aside, the novel itself is still pretty uplifting, with Ralph and Lois finding magic in their final years as well as each other. That notion is questioned when Ralph realizes that he's been growing younger because he's been draining the life force um, around him, turning him into what he believes is a vampire of sorts, what he thinks Ed might have called centurions. We later learn that he doesn't have the capability to drain anyone to cause them harm, and this fear is unfounded, but it's a wrinkle that creates tension for the time being. And then King just gives us this scene of beauty and magic um, and hope. On uh, pages... 421 to 422, I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's pages uh, 411 to 412. So, at 20 minutes past 7, a perfectly maintained Lincoln Town car of late 70s vintage drew up to the curb in front of Lois's house. Ralph, who had spent the last hour showering, shaving, and trying to get himself calmed down, stood on the porch and watched Lois get out of the back seat. Goodbyes were said and girlish, sprightly laughter drifted across to him on the breeze. The Lincoln pulled away and Lois started up her walk. Halfway along it, she stopped and turned. For a long moment, the two of them regarded each other from their opposite sides of Harris Avenue seeing perfectly well in spite of the deepening darkness and the 200 yards which separated them. They burned for each other in that darkness like secret torches. Lois pointed a finger at him. It was very close to the hand gesture she'd made before shooting at Doc 3, but this didn't upset Ralph in the least. Intent, he thought. Everything lies in intent. There are few mistakes in this world, and once you get to know your way around, maybe there are no mistakes at all. A narrow, gray, glistening beam of force appeared at the end of Lois's finger and began to extend itself across the deepening shadows of Harris Avenue. A passing car drove blithely through it. The car's windows flashed a momentary bright, blind gray, and its headlights seemed to flicker briefly, but that was all. Ralph raised his own finger, and a blue beam grew from it. These two narrow casts of light met in the center of Harris Avenue and twined together like woodbine. Higher and higher the interwoven pigtail rose, paling slightly as it went. Then Ralph curled his finger, and his half of the love knot in the middle of Harris Avenue winked out of existence. A moment later, Lois's half also disappeared. Ralph slowly descended the porch steps and began to cross his lawn. Lois came towards him. They met in the middle of the street, where, in a very real sense, they had met already. Ralph put his arms around her waist and kissed her. Ralph then realizes who the little bald doctors are, the weird sisters of Greek mythology. 
And while Ralph can't remember the names of Doc 1 and Doc 2, he remembers the name of the sister that he associated with Doc 3, the cutter of the cord, Atropos. Ralph and Lois head to the hospital in order to find Doc 2 and Doc 3, and when, I'm sorry, Doc 1 and Doc 2, and when there, they rise up to another level of existence. And if you've been on the fence about the auras at this point, then I'm sure this scene will cause you to jump off and run for the hills. Me, on the other hand, just can't get enough of the visuals, both within the narrative and the text itself, the bracketed conversation between Lois and Ralph that signifies communication on a higher level of existence. And when they finally meet Clotho and Lachesis, when I first read the book, nearly shot through the roof in excitement. I had been fully engaged because of the setting of Derry. But King, man, King decides to up the ante even more than he already had been. The two doctors describe how Ralph and Lois are invisible and see the things that they do. On page 452, Clotho smiled. You didn't imagine it. Try to think of life as a kind of building, Ralph, what you would call a skyscraper. And the second, I'm inserting myself here, the second he wrote that, I kind of paused. All right, and I said, wait, wait a minute here. I started getting an inkling. I was like, hold on. He's not about to do what I think he's about to do. Is he? Is he? And then he does. He does. He goes and does it. Except that wasn't quite what Clotho was thinking, Ralph discovered. For one flickering moment, he seemed to catch an image from the mind of the other, one he found both exciting and disturbing. An enormous tower, constructed of dark and sooty stone, standing in a field of roses, slit windows twisted up its sides in a brooding spiral. Ugh. You know, I, then it was gone. You and Lois and all the other short-time creatures live on the first two floors of this structure. Of course there are elevators. No, Ralph thought, not on the tower that I saw in your mind, my little friend. In that building, if such a building actually exists, there are no elevators. Only a narrow staircase festooned with cobwebs and doorways leading to God knows what. Oh my God, I'm going to get into this in much more detail in the bonus edition. But guys, right here, I mean, this floored me. You know, King goes for the fantastic and the metaphysical here, with existence being described as resting on different floors of the Dark Tower itself. But King knows how to keep you grounded so your head doesn't explode. Ralph immediately remembers a moment lost in the fog of exhaustion in his kitchen, reminding him and the reader of the real-world condition that this novel is based on. The doctors begin to explain the mythology of this universe with playing cards as a visual metaphor, describing Ed as a blank card who now serves the bidding of one of the all-timers, the Crimson King. So now we have the mythology set in place of four constants in human existence, life and death, random and purpose. And within those four concepts, there exists, or maybe all around, I'm sorry, in the middle of these concepts, springing from these concepts, everything is swirling around, these concepts are swirling around the Dark Tower itself. And the Dark Tower, as we know, holds the multiverse together. And within the, the, the scaffolding of this Dark Tower exists beings that live very differently from one another. We have our short-timers, and humanity would be short-timers. And I, it's in, insinuated that there are other beings besides humans that 
exist within the short time realm. Then you have the long timers like Clotho and Lachesis and Atropos. And then at the very, very top, you have your all timers. And it's suggested that the Crimson King is an all timer. And I will definitely get more into this in the bonus episode. Uh, and the scene here provides the explanation that we need to understand um, the events of everything leading up to this moment. And it also allows for a ticking clock. The Ralph and Lois have to stop Ed before the end of the night. And Ralph realizes what the word was that had been written on Ed's Chinese scarf during the opening scene of the book, which brings it all the way back to the beginning, and that word is kamikaze. So we've had a lot of metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, we've had a lot of cosmic metaphysical stuff going on, but now it becomes a race against time. Which brings us to part three, The Crimson King. Basically, with about 200, 250 pages to go, King just lets his characters figure out how to stop Ed before he can bomb the Civic Center. Without an idea of what to do, they head to the High Ridge Women's Shelter that's currently under attack by Ed's cronies. Ralph and Lois manage to stop Charlie Pickering and save the trapped women and children, who includes Patrick Danville. As they leave, they meet up with Dorrance Marsteller, who they, bent, who they begin to believe isn't human at all. Dorrance fills in some of the gaps and states that the three of them, along with Joe Weiser, are Ka-Tet, which fans of the Dark Tower will recognize. Ralph begins to suspect that they are being tasked with stopping Ed, not because 2,000 Civic Center attendees are on the line, but for another reason. Dorrance's answer to Ralph is enigmatic, but authoritative, which makes me question who Dorrance Marstello really is. What's this about, really? I mean, it's not about saving 2,000 or so people Clotho and Lachesis said are going to be here tonight, that's for sure. So the kind of an all-time force they talked about, 2,000 lives are probably just a little more grease on the bearing. So what's it all about? Why are we here? Dorrance's grin had faded at last. With it gone, he looked younger and strangely formidable. Job asked God the same question, he said, and got no answer. You're not going to get one either, but I'll tell you this much. You've become the pivot point of great events and vast forces. The work of the higher universe has almost completely come to a stop as those of both the random and the purpose turn to mark your progress. That's great, but I don't get it, Ralph said, more in resignation than in anger. Um, but that's that. I mean, I just love how for a second there, Dorrance lets the, is it an act? I don't know, slip. Because up until this point, he's kind of been presented as a bumbling, senile man that kind of has lost his marbles. But we know that that's not the case. He definitely knows a lot more than he ever lets on in the pages of the story. And I'll get to Dorrance later on. But whoever he is, he's dismissive of Clotho and Lachesis, saying that Ralph and Lois were sent to High Ridge by the purpose, with a purpose, uh, that was fulfilled. And though they don't know it yet, that purpose is to save the life of Patrick Danville. They arrive at the Civic Center, which not only is enclosed in a massive death bag, which is disgusting, but also teeming with spectral bugs that are drawn to the oncoming tragedy. King details how the bag is a living creature, barely sentient, but alive and ready for death. Now that Ralph and Lois have accepted their mission, they've accepted that there is a price to pay with the auras. 
And that means that not only can they see the beauty behind things, but they can also see the ugly and the diseased. Everything about the Civic Center, from the death bag that surrounds it, to the walls of black goo in front of the main doors, to the bugs that are running up and down the walls. They spot Atropos's tracks, which leads them to an old dead tree, which marks his lair. And it's great. It's like something out of a fantasy novel. The splotchy track which had begun at the doors of the Civic Center ended at the base of a drunkenly leaning dead oak tree 200 feet away. The cause of both the tree's death and its final leaning position was clear. One side of the venerable relic had been peeled like a banana by a glancing stroke of lightning. The cracks and bulges of its great bark seemed to make the shapes of half-buried, silently screaming faces, and the tree spread its nude branches against the sky like grim ideograms, one which bore, at least in Ralph's imagination, an uncomfortable resemblance to the Japanese ideogram which meant kamikaze. The bolt which had killed the tree had succeeded in knocking it over, but it had certainly done its best. The part of its extensive root system which faced the airport had been yanked right out of the ground. These roots had extended beneath the chain-link fence and pulled a section of it upward and outward in a bell shape that made Ralph think for the time, for the first time in years, of a childhood acquaintance named Charles Engstrom. He continues, uh, describing a hole in the tree lit with a red glow and roots as rungs descending into a pit. It's just so magical. After descending into this underworld, they reach a staircase that takes them even deeper. They follow it through a tiny hallway that leads to a door, and the descriptions in this scene are very, very similar to the doorway that the losers find in the concluding pages of It. Both novels have the feel of a fairy tale, with Ralph and Lois even remarking upon it. Both novels, by the way, feature endings in which the main characters have to descend into the underworld to face the supernatural threat that has been terrorizing this city for generations. They enter a labyrinth of trophies belonging to victims throughout the years, and victims yet to be. In the center of this is Ed's wedding ring, the symbol of the soul that he gave up in service of the Crimson King. It's reminiscent of J.R.R. Tolkien in the sense that, that the lair of trophies feels like Smog's treasure room. And when Atropos appears to attack Ralph and Lois, they battle over a ring, the villain whining and screaming the entire time in a manner more in line with Gollum. In fact, with the appearance of Ed and Helen's wedding ring at the end, if, Ap if Atropos is a Gollum-type figure, then it makes the Crimson King very much the Sauron of the novel. Even as the novel races to its conclusion, King continues to unfurl mysteries, such as the vision, the vision of the person in the Red Sox hat in the front of the Red Apple that Atropos gives him. Who is this person? Why does the vision upset Ralph the way that it does? Ralph becomes furious at the machinery behind the universe, which reveals not necessarily a benevolent god, but a bunch of middle managers who are unqualified for the positions they hold. When pressed, Clotho and Lachesis revealed to Ralph that everything that has occurred has been to prevent Patrick Danville from falling prey to the random. According to the two docs, his case must remain within the cosmic department of the purpose, though the reasons aren't made clear yet. And all of the metaphysical mumbo-jumbo of centurions, the Crimson King, the Three Fates, balloon strings, auras, magic scissors, evil scalpels, finger bullets, karate chop, projectiles, fairy tale, underground layers, magic, multiplying rings, death bags, agents of life, dead, purpose, and random, becomes focused with a very understandable conflict. The hero must save the life 
of a young child before the monsters can get to him. Now, Ralph becomes a Knight of the White, someone who Roland would respect and admire greatly. King lays it all on the line on page 682 to 683. Clotho says, Listen, every now and then a man or a woman comes along whose life will affect not just those around him or her, or even all those who live in the short-time world, but those on many levels above and below the short-time world. Those people are the great ones, and their lives always serve the purpose. If they are taken too soon, everything changes. The scales cease to balance. Can you imagine, for instance, how different the world might be today if Hitler had drowned in the bathtub as a child? You may believe the world would be better for that, but I can tell you that the world would not exist at all if it had happened. Suppose Winston Churchill had died of food poisoning before he ever became prime minister. Suppose Augustus Caesar had been born dead, strangled in his own umbilical cord. Yet the person we want you to save is of far greater importance than any of these. So he goes on to talk about Patrick Danville. Um, if Deep No fails, the boy will be safe again. He will pass his time quietly until his moment comes and he steps upon the stage to play his brief but crucially important part. If the child dies, the tower of all existence will fall and the consequence of such a fall are beyond your comprehension and beyond ours as well. Ralph demands a deal which is granted by a voice that comes with a flash of white light, which I'll discuss more in the bonus episode. But for now, I'll just say that this has to be Gon, the godlike figure in the Stephen King mythology. The doctors perform their surgery on Ralph, and then Lois is visited by a green man, a figure that is never, ever explained. And I will discuss my predictions on this character in the bonus episode. Ralph steps through the magic doorway into Ed's plane where he's visited by the Crimson King himself. Now, hold on, hold on. Sorry, I'm just so used to this book that I, I sometimes kind of gloss over some things here. Yeah, so Ralph steps through a porta potty and magically winds up in Ed's plane, half sticking out of the plane, and he's not like being blown away because he's on a different level of existence. And he looks over, and he sees his mother, long dead, sitting in a rocking chair, just floating in the sky, keeping, you know, uh, keeping up with the plane. It, 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 it is, I, okay, listen, I, I think that this is maybe where, you know, you, you kind of come down on one side or the other. You either accept it for what it is, and you say, who thought of this? And I, I kind of have to love the person that thought of this, or you say, this is stupid. Me? I love this. This is great. And so the, his mother is the Crimson King here. Um, you know, who... It's it's such a great image. I mean, this the fact that Crimson King appears as Ralph's long-dead mother, I mean, this stands as one of the novel's more memorable images. And I can't help but think that it's inspired by the Wizard of Oz, of the way that his mother is sitting in the rocking chair right outside the plane. It makes me think of the witch um, riding by on the bicycle. As Mrs. Roberts tells Ralph to stay out of the long-time business, his mother's living room begins to materialize around him. He notices that his mother is beginning to change, much like the clown from It, specifically in the Mrs. Kirsch scene with Beverly. 
The creature continues to morph, and the chapter ends with a wonderful button that Ralph realizes that he's in the court of the Crimson King. Here, King presents a bit of a continuity error, or what will be later a continuity error, as the Crimson King reveals that Ed has come up with that name for him, and we'll later learn that he's always been known as the Crimson King. Now, I'll talk about the Crimson King in much more detail in the bonus episode, but this scene nearly had me screaming because King included this line. If you don't want me to be Mom Roberts, why not call me the Kingfish? You remember the Kingfish from the radio, don't you? Yes, of course he did. But the real Kingfish had never been on Amos and Andy, and it hadn't really been a Kingfish at all. The real Kingfish had been a Queenfish, and it had lived in the Barrens. As a major IT fan, this shout-out nearly made my brain explode. There was a moment there where I thought that King was stating that the Crimson King was IT itself. But let me clarify, in case there was any confusion. The Crimson King is not the spider. First, the objectives of the two characters are completely different. Secondly, the spider was clearly defeated at the end of IT. There's a nice shout-out to the spider, though, as the Crimson King states that, the, that shape-changing is a time-honored tradition in Derry. And not only does King give a shout-out to the spider, but he also gives a shout-out to Randall Flagg as he described the Crimson King's eye flashing like a lynx, which is how he had described Flagg before. Ralph defeats the Crimson King somehow. It never really made much sense to me. The doctors placed a bomb in Ralph's arm, which he then sticks inside the Crimson King's mouth, which sends him back to the Deadlights, which it's insinuated that he's from. You know, in It, the conclusion involved a metaphysical battle in an astral plane, but King had spent enough time with smoke visions and the ritual of Chud for the ending to make sense. Here, however, for as much that he's done with auras and different planes of existence, this does not feel earned. The imagery's great. You know, the mother flying above the ground in the rocking chair, morphing into a catfish, that's wonderful. But the earrings and the bomb, that's just too much for me at least for me, because it's just, like I said, does not feel earned. Um, so Ralph manages to defeat Ed in a, you know, in a very, very tense scene as the Civic Center is rushing up at them. The plane crashes. Many people die, but Patrick survives, and King gives us a great Dark Tower reference. Again, guys, I distinctly remember reading this the first time it came out and just my mind leaking out of my eyes and ears because King completely melted my brain. So Patrick has drawn a picture. In the middle of the poster sheet, a tower of dark colored stone rose into a blue sky dotted with fat white clouds. Standing, surrounding it, was a field of roses so red they almost seemed to clamor aloud. Standing off to one side was a man dressed in faded blue jeans. A pair of gun belts crossed his flat middle. A holster, stung, sunk, sorry, a holster hung below each hip. At the very top of the tower, a man in a red robe was looking down at the gunfighter with an expression of mingled hate and fear. His hands, which were curled over the parapet, also appeared to be red. Oh, so good. Okay, so he continues. Um, his mother looks at it. Perhaps she even had, sorry. She had known for two years that Patrick was what the child psychologist called a prodigy, and she sometimes told herself he had gotten used to his specific, sophisticated drawings. Um, perhaps she even had to some degree, but this particular picture gave her a strange, deep chill that she could not entirely dismiss as an emotional fallout from her long, stressful day. 
Who's that? She asked, tapping the tiny finger, peering jealously down from the top of the dark tower. Him's the Red King, Patrick said. Oh, the Red King, I see. And who is this man with the guns? As he opened his mouth to answer, Roberta Harper, the woman at the podium, lifted her left arm. Um, there was a black mourning band on it that tore the woman sitting behind her. My friends, Mrs. Susan Day, she cried, and Patrick Danville's answer to his mother's second question was lost in the rising storm of applause. Him's name is Roland, Mama. I dream about him sometimes. Him's a king, too. And then later, uh, King continues on page 731 after, the, after Patrick has been saved. Then he was gone, and Pat began walking up the stairs again. She felt a calmness in him now, a centered lack of fear that touched her heart with love and with some queer darkness as well. He was so different, her son, so special. But the world did not love special, did not love people like that. The world tried to root them out like tares from a garden, which really sets the stage for other stories, which we found in Everything's Eventual and Black House, in which we learn more of the Crimson King's uh, manipulations in the world, in the universes. They emerged at last into the corridor. A few deeply shocked people wandered back and forth, eyes dazed and mouths agape like zombies in a horror movie. Sonia hardly glanced at them, just got Pat moving towards the stairs. Three minutes later, they exited into the fire-shot night, perfectly unscathed, and upon all the levels of the universes, matters both random and purposeful resumed their ordained courses. Worlds which had trembled for a moment in their orbits now steadied. And in one of those worlds... In a desert that was the apothesis of all deserts, a man named Roland turned over in his bedroll and slept easily once again beneath the alien constellations. Ralph and Lois, after saving the day, don't celebrate with a bout of lovemaking, but more appropriately, with a bout of long-deserved sleep. King presents an incredible description on the power of sleep on page 747. Ralph stayed awake for perhaps five minutes longer, holding her in his arms, smelling the wonderful interwoven scents rising from her warm skin, luxuriating in the smooth, sensuous glide of the silk under his hands, marveling at where he was even more than the events which brought him here. He was filled with some deep and simple emotion, one he recognized but could not immediately name, perhaps because it had been gone from his life too long. The wind gusted and moaned outside, producing that hollow hooting sound over the top of the drain pipe again, like the world's biggest Nirvana boy blowing over the mouth of the world's biggest pop bottle. And it occurred to Ralph that maybe nothing in life was better than lying deep in a soft bed with a sleeping woman in your arms while the fall wind screamed outside your safe haven. Except there was something better, one thing at least, and that was the feeling of falling asleep of going gently into that good night, slipping out into the currents of unknowing the way a canoe slips away from a dock and slides into the current of a wide, slow river on a bright summer day. Of all the things which make up our short-time lives, sleep is surely the best, Ralph thought. The wind gusted again outside, the sound of it now seeming to come from a great distance, and as he felt the tug of that great river take him, he was finally able to identify the emotion he had been feeling ever since Lois had put her arms around him and fallen asleep as easily and as trustingly as a child. It went under many different names, peace, serenity, fulfillment. But now, as the wind blew and Lois made some dark sound of sleeping contentment far back in her throat, 
It seemed to Ralph that it was one of those rare things which are known but essentially unnameable, a texture, an aura, perhaps a whole level of being in that column of existence. It was the smooth russet color of rest. It was the silence which follows the completion of some arduous but necessary task. Now from here on out, King gives us resolution. Ro Lois, I'm sorry, Ralph and Lois get married, now having forgotten what occurred. King even gives us a wrap-up to the ring, which takes on even more of the one ring to rule them all ring from Lord of the Rings. And just like that ring, it passes from hands to hands, goes missing for long periods of time. The ring rolled down the gutter and disappeared into a sewer grate, and there it remained for a long time, but not forever. In Derry, things that disappear into the sewer system have a way, an often unpleasant one, of turning up. That is a great reference to it, and it makes me want King to write a thematic third novel in his tale of age set against the backdrop of this haunted city. It'd be difficult, and I don't know what he'd be able to tell. I mean, like I've said before, he's told of children, of adults, and now the elderly combating the evil forces of both our world and the underworld in this city. So I guess there's not much left to comment on, but there's no way that I don't want to see what happens to this ring after a tease like that. King wraps up the novel with a glimpse into the life of Ralph and Lois over a span of about five years and reveals that the deal that he had made with Doc 1 and Doc 2 in which he sacrifices himself to save Natalie. And it's a really sad ending, guys. It's sad. Ralph on... What are you barking at? Oh, so earlier, you know, when I said when a, uh, a, a dog or a, a cat, you know, stares off and, and starts barking or growling at something that you can't see... Okay, that's happening right now. Come over here. Come here. What are you barking at? I hope it's not Atropos. All right, anyway, uh, so super sad ending, super sad. So Ralph, on some level, like, knows he's going to die. You know, I mean, he knows what's happening. Uh, so, yeah, it's sad, but it's a great, it's a great ending. His acceptance of his fate is met with dignity and strength. I mean, his goodbye to Lois is beautiful and painful. You know, though his confrontation with the Crimson King to me was lacking, the real ending of this book is a perfect bow on this wonderful novel. So what I want to do now is talk about the characters, um, starting with Ralph. Ralph, to me, is... I mean, I think that Ralph will always get overshadowed by, you know, his more famous characters. And even in his, like, heroic characters, he'll get overshadowed by, you know, Roland and, and others. And I've spoken at length about Alan Pangborn, but there's something about Ralph. Ralph is a great guy. And maybe that's why it was just so hard to watch him go. But he's a man that lived life. I mean, despite the fact that he had to serve forces that were beyond his comprehension, he still always had a say. And he took these giant forces that were above him and made them cower in their place. The fates from Greek mythology, uh, Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos, even though two of them were, were on his side, 
he put all three of them in the corner and he made demands and he forced them to meet those demands the biggest bad in Stephen King's universe one that Roland sorry I, I almost almost spoiled something there um, but I'll get to that but I'll just say that we do meet the Crimson King again and the fact that uh, Ralph is able to make the Crimson King turn tail and run really shows how how much strength Ralph has and it's strength here it's not like Alan Pangborn in the concluding pages of Needful Things where it's revealed that Alan Pangborn is a conduit of the white um, that he does have magic ability that he had demonstrated through just kind of everyday illusions but he actually is a powerful magician in his own right Ralph doesn't have that what Ralph has he has the power of the everyman standing up to everything that he can't control so when he plunges his uh, the, the earrings into the Crimson King's eye when he shoves his fist into the Crimson King's mouth when he tells off Lachesis and um, Clothos when he starts beating up and torturing Atropos and making Atropos beg for him to stop what he's doing is he's raging and rebelling against the forces of this world that have taken away his wife have taken away his right to sleep have taken away um, a, just a simple stray dog that has taken away his his best friend that he never ate, was able to get to say goodbye to. So there's such poetry and symbolism in the actions of Ralph, and it's very easy to get lost in in this just being a story about uh, an old guy seeing auras. But it's a lot more than that, and I'll definitely get to the age piece later. But Ralph himself. Everything that he does, he does as the common man, standing up against just the, the higher power, and it's great. Now, Lois, uh, I just talked a little bit about, you know, Ralph, but I, honestly, guys, I think that Lois probably should have been the main character here, if you think about it. And if they ever make a movie, I hope that it is Lois's story, and I hope that Lois is played by Meryl Streep, because how great would that be? But the reason I say that it's it should be about Lois is because at the end of the day, let's look at the the, the shootout at the High Ridge Women's Center. So actually, to, to set the stage here, and it's not something that I talked about much already, but this novel is a continuation of King's uh, thematic exploration of uh, abused women. All right, so it's. It's the whole backdrop of this story. So, I mean, we have the, the supernatural events occurring behind the scenes. Um, so that's the back backdrop. But the backdrop itself is the very real-world debate of pro-life and pro-choice and the tensions that rise from this argument, something that we're still seeing today. And from these tensions comes anger and frustration and murder and vengeance. And this women's shelter um, is attacked by some zealots. And all this revolves around um, a, a women's rights activist coming to town. So with all of this playing out, with a, a women's shelter being attacked and abused women being murdered and a uh, the, the fact that the 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 character 
that is the object of the random and the purpose, the one that, that Ralph has to save here, who will ultimately save as destined here, as stated in the pages of Insomnia, he will save the life of, of Roland, uh, the gunslinger, who will then save the, the Dark Tower, hopefully. The fact that this child is the result of a domestic family issue. I mean, the importance of everything here lies in in how powerful and how threatening domestic abuse really is. And all of this is represented through the female characters. So in the High Ridge attack, who saves the day? It's Ralph. So we have a story here in which King is writing about women's rights and females having their own agency at least theoretically that's kind of what he thinks he's writing about or maybe what he wants to write about but he still has our main character be a male and a male who saves the helpless women from the crazy people wouldn't have been much more thematically accurate if our main character had been Lois who is who goes through very much the same arc as Ralph so if we just had a gender switch and we start with Lois, Lois loses her husband, falls in love with Ralph, but Lois is the one that stops the uh, Lois is the one that, that stops Charlie Pickering um, at the, the high ridge. Lois is the one that confronts the Crimson King. So that would be, you know, the, the, the she would represent all women standing up to men who are trying to control women, right? The Crimson King. So a patriarchal society, she's standing up to that. She would stand up to Ed and, you know, by stopping him, thematically she's stopping domestic abuse, right? So to me, it just makes so much more sense for Lois to be the main character. Don't get me wrong, I love Ralph. I love Ralph. But relegating Lois to second tier status and having her do not much of anything, to me that is... It, it's counterproductive to what King is, is doing here. So, I mean, yeah, she, she attacks Atropos for wearing her, her diamonds, which suggests that, you know, Atropos is going to attack her. And, but, I mean, what, what does that do? I mean, it just gives Ralph a moment to then save Lois. You know, so Ralph saves Lois. Ralph saves Natalie. Ralph saves the women at, at you know, High Ridge. Ralph stops Ed. Ralph saves everyone at the Civic Center. It's all Ralph. Which is great for Ralph, but I think that it should have been Lois. Something to think about. Bill McGovern. I'm not going to talk much about Bill here, but not only does King explore the, the female perspective, which I will get to in a little bit, but I think that with Bill, this is uh, King's first openly gay character. I mean, he had you know he had um, written of Adrian Mellon in the pages of It, but barely. And I just think that with Bill... He was creating a much more nuanced um, gay character. And then now, I'm going to talk about Ed. Ed is an interesting character because we've never seen him before the point where he's been driven to insanity, you know, before the Crimson King had begun to work on him. I mean, we get descriptions from Ralph about the man he thought that Ed had been, but we never get to see that man. We only ever see Ed the monster, and this isn't a criticism. With Ed, King creates a sympathetic villain. And this isn't to say that we should root for Ed because he's always still a monster, don't get me wrong, but he's someone that has been infected and corrupted by forces that he can't even comprehend. 
let alone combat. And I'm sure that his pro-life beliefs were already in place by the time Crimson King began to work on him. <clears throat> but there's a difference between having an opinion and being a zealot. Because Ed has been referenced as being a good man at one point, he becomes another victim in the Crimson King's goal of destroying the tower. He is just as much collateral damage in the Crimson King's quest as Ed's victims in the as sorry as Ed's victims in the Civic Center suicide bombing. <clears throat> Again, I'm not saying that Ed is a misunderstood hero, but King takes great pains to illustrate this man's insanity. This is clearly someone not in control of himself. Now, if you want a full-on villain to want to hate, then head on over to King's next book, Rose Matter. In that book, you can see how King continues his examination on the concept of the domestic abuser. But with the character of Norman, he strips away any excuse and creates a full-blown villain as monstrous and destructively obsessive in his goals as the Crimson King himself. With Ed, King explores the always hot topic argument of pro-life versus pro-choice, which again allows him to keep this fantastical story with one foot in a recognizable world. And when Ed's Friends of Life's group begins to become a media hit, this novel, written in 1994, instantly becomes relevant in 2015, as the media is using this story to sensationalize the news rather to uh, simply report it. And lastly, I want to talk about Dorrance. What the hell is Dorrance? Seriously. You know, Lois and Ralph don't think that he's human, so he's not a short-timer. If Clotho and Lachesis aren't aware of him, then he isn't a long-timer. So that suggests that he's an all-timer. But what exactly are the all-timers? The Guardians of the Beam? Gone? You know, one of the issues with Insomnia is that by the end, there are too many loose ends and vague mystery characters who know more than our main characters. Dorrance, Doc 1 and 2, the magic voice from the sky, Lois's green man. It's one thing to have one mysterious figure, but to have multiple without any ex explanation, it's an issue. So that is a problem that I have with this book. So I like Dorrance, but at the same time, the lack of answers about Doris, who Doris Dorrance is, combined with the other mysterious figures that we get with no explanation who those mysterious figures are and the fact that we never get a payoff from any of these threads in any other Stephen King book, uh, that's an issue that I have. So now, uh, with the characters out of the way, what I want to talk about is getting old. The title might be Insomnia, but the novel could just have easily been called Getting Old. And actually would have been a more appropriate title, as insomnia is just a symptom of the much larger human condition. With this book, King, around 45, I think, at the time that he wrote it, looks ahead. Until this point, he's written novels with protagonists that have shared his age, with a few exceptions such as The Talisman or the ensemble pieces like The Stand. But with insomnia, almost every character in this book is either younger than him, like Ed, Helen, or older, Ralph, Lois, and Bill. There comes a time in your life when you start attending more and more funerals, right? You know, maybe King had hit this stage at this point. Maybe the generation he grew up with knowing as adults was clearing the stage for the next. It would make sense for King to start thinking more and more about the inevitability of growing old and ultimately death. He explored that concept most heavily in Pet Cemetery, but that was loaded with horror. Death was a horrific thing, more frightening than any rabid dog or sewer clown he could come up with a cannibalistic monster chewing on the bodies of the living. But by the time he gets to insomnia, one decade later, death is still awful, but it isn't the horror that it was to a younger man. 
There's more of an acceptance to it, a part of life. It takes Ralph the entire novel to accept death, but he does accept death. And the horrific edges have been dulled by making a 70-year-old man the star. He's that much closer to death. He's experienced it that much more, and it isn't as alien a concept as it is to a younger man. It allows King to explore aging and a person's relationship with dying from a much different perspective than Lewis Creed, the young father. King fills the pages with wonderful little observations about aging that feel authentic, or at least as authentic as a 34-year-old can say, um, you know, such as uh, what he writes on page 111 to 112. Ralph nodded and smiled, thinking to himself that of all the elderly people he knew, he knew at least three dozen on a casual walk in the park, hi, how you doing basis, Bill McGovern bitched the most about getting on in years. He seemed to regard his vanished youth and recently departed middle age as a general would regard a couple of soldiers who desert on the eve of a big battle. He wasn't about to say such a thing. However, everyone had their little eccentricities. Being theatrical morbid about growing old was simply one of McGovern's. But it's not just about getting old. It's about the last hurrah of life. Capturing passion again. Passion for love. Passion for living. It's about capturing that magic that manifested itself so heavily in childhood. And what is this novel but a crazy fairy tale? The aspects of this novel might be more traditionally suited for children protagonists. A bad guy named the Crimson King. Terrifying doctors. But at the end, don't we all come to fear doctors just as much as kids? More so, maybe? After spending a lifetime in this earth, shouldn't we be able to recapture the magic? see colors that we never saw before, fall in love again. It's a book that goes to some very heavy places, but always it's wonderfully life-affirming. It's a novel about old age written by a younger man, so the youthful energy fits the narrative about second acts and restored youth. However, I'd like to see a companion piece to this written by King nowadays, now that he's around the age of Ralph and Lois, so now that his perspective has changed, I'd like to see what he's able to do. I'm not saying that I'd like to see a sequel, but a new story about aging and the secret city of the elderly. And maybe he already did. You know, maybe that's Duma Key. You know, I will definitely have to keep Insomnia in mind when I get around to rereading Duma Key, whose episode review I will predict probably will come around in um, probably January, if I could guess. So think about that one, guys. You know, I mean, once we get to that area, that at that era of, of books around what 2005, 2006, 2004, no, 2000, like 2006, 2007, maybe. Once we get to that era of books, we'll be gearing up for the, the final lap of the Stephen King cast. All right, female perspective. You know, though this is Ralph's story, you know, King continues a thread that he began weaving in Gerald's game. And that's the battered female. So first, in Gerald's game, he explored abuse in many forms. Child abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. In Dolores Claiborne, he explored spousal abuse, child abuse, molestation. Here he presents another man abusing his wife. And with the Susan Day character, King is really ready to explore certain hot-button topics in regards to being a woman in 1990s America. A topic still being had today. The rights of a woman's body, pro-choice and pro-life. 
It makes this novel about so much more than auras and little bald doctors. The fate of the multiverse is completely interwoven into the tale of women's rights. Or to put it just a little bit differently, symbolically, the domestic abuse nearly brings about the collapse of the entire multiverse. That's powerful. The arrival of Susan Day is the mirror to the coming of the Crimson King, at least when we look at it through Ed's perspective. When he and the other Friends of Life speak about Susan Day, they use a great deal of rhetoric that reimagines Susan Day less of a person, more of a force, a figurehead to a great conspiracy. She's given the title of the Angel of Death and described the rivers of blood that comes from the abortion clinic. To Ed, she is an adversary with great power and influence, and little does he know that he's really been in servitude to the real villain the entire time. Now, guys... Let's talk about dairy, all right? Now, I've talked about dairy a little bit, you know, um, but I haven't really talked about what it feels like to return to this town again. And even though we're interacting with an entirely new bunch of new characters, it still feels like dairy. But it doesn't at the same time. What I mean is, walking along the streets, you know, I can picture the town that was so perfectly described in it. And it doesn't hurt. I took a tour of this town, and you can too, at sk-tours.com. So geographically and physically, it feels like dairy, but simultaneously feels like a different dairy than the one in It. And what I mean by that is that in It, dairy had a soul-crushing weight. The town itself was like a hungry, squatting animal. There was always constant danger and corruption that had soaked into every floorboard and inch of pavement. For instance, it wasn't the clown that was responsible for the death of Adrian Mellon from It. It was Derry, a scene that is remembered by Ralph on page 197. He found himself remembering something which had happened almost 10 years ago shortly after the annual Canal Days Festival had ended. Three boys had thrown an unassuming and inoffensive young gay man named Adrian Mellon into the Kendasog after repeatedly biting and stabbing him. It was rumored they had stood there on the bridge behind the Falcon Tavern and watched him die. They told the police that they hadn't liked the hat he was wearing. That was also dairy, and only a fool would ignore that fact. You know, he also writes... He'd lived in Derry for 70 years, off and on, and he knew it was a dangerous machine. There were a lot of sharp points and cutting edges just below the surface. That was true of a lot of cities, of course, but in Derry, there had always seemed to be an extra dimension to the ugliness. Helen had called it home, and it was his home, but... And Bill McGovern has a very similar idea about Derry. He writes, or he says... You know me, Ralph, I'm a cynic from a long line of them. I think it's very rare for ordinary human conflicts to resolve themselves the way they do on TV. In reality, they just keep coming back, turning and diminishing circles until they finally disappear. Except disappearing isn't really what they do. They dry up like mud puddles in the sun. And most of them leave the same scummy residue behind. That pervasive evil was an extension of it itself. So it makes sense that Derry doesn't feel like that anymore because the losers had broken the cycle and murdered the beast. It feels cleaner and fresher because it is. 
yeah, there are still some lingering traces, like Bill McGovern talks about, such as the fact that everyone seems to be poisoned with anger on either side of the Susan Day debate, but no matter how many times someone mentions that Derry can be an ugly place, it just doesn't feel that way. It feels more like someone has opened up the windows of a boarded-up house whose owners chain-smoked incessantly. You still might smell the nicotine, but you're also getting fresh air. Yes, evil is drawn to dairy, and evil forces manifest themselves within the common folk, but it is not as ubiquitous, and unlike it, it's very purposeful. Ed is the result of a cosmic conspiracy, and is the only corrupted human employed by the Crimson King. Similarly, Pennywise had purposefully corrupted Henry and a very small handful of other characters, but large chunks of the townspeople were awful because the long-existing evil had permeated every molecule of their being. In it, people regularly turned a blind eye to tragedy and danger. Here, it's the opposite. The cycle has broken. As evidenced by the contrast between the two pharmacists in either book, the character that most notably defined the horrid mean qualities of Derry was Mr. Keenan, the pharmacist, who took pleasure in informing Eddie of his psychosomatic issues. And in this novel, we have Joe Weiser, a character who comes out of nowhere to help Ralph through his insomnia. All right, guys, so now it's time for the Stephen Kingisms, tricks and traits and tropes that you see from one book to the next. So the first is car crashes. Guys, car crashes is something that we saw as far back in Carrie, in which Carrie um, uses her telepathic abilities to force the, the main bullies into a car crash. And it's something that, of course, we, we saw a lot in Christine. But it's a car crash that opens the book with Ed getting into a car crash, and it closes the book and closes the final chapter on Ralph's life as he dies by a very detailed description of a car crash in which King just really paints a very vivid scene of his broken body and when I read that this was written this was published in 1994 five years before the car crash that caused King to die because King did die, he was you know he was resuscitated, he was brought back to life, but it did claim his life, even if that meant for just a few moments or a moment or a few seconds. Thankfully, King came back to us. But car crashes have an almost prophetic presence in Stephen King's works. It's very uncomfortable at times to read, as if on some level he knew what was going to happen to him. And this will play out in the pages of some books coming up um, within the 10-year span of publication here that I really can't wait to get to and describe and then discuss in much more detail. And then we have the relationship between the elderly couple and a young family. Um, so Ralph and uh, Caroline, or Carolyn, uh, the, how they interact with the deep nose uh, a younger family is very reminiscent of the uh, Judd Crandall and his wife and their relationship with um, the Creeds from Pet Cemetery, except it's through the perspective of Ralph rather than the perspective of Judd. And then we have grounding the fantastic with the everyday. Now, I've never really explicitly stated this in a Stephen Kingism because this is just so ever-present in all of his books. I usually touch upon it in the analysis like I've done with the, this Insomnia review so far, but I wanted to pinpoint it right here 
So I can just talk about it more right now. As I said at the top of the review, Insomnia is usually mocked by people. An unfair take on what is a very high concept and thoroughly entertaining novel. You know, King presents his version of Satan among other cosmic forces and ties it all to the, the strange and surreal mythology of the Dark Tower. But for every out there concept he has, he ties it to recognizable aspects of the everyday. Atropos and the Little Bald Doctors are ridiculous characters, and you might not be able to relate to it, but if you follow their thread backwards, you can relate to Sleepless Nights. You can relate to mysteriously losing an item. Every time I can't find something, I always think of insomnia and worry that Atropos is going to cut my balloon string. Now that is a sign that King was successful in linking this cosmic to the mundane. It makes the mundane that much more fun. I just lost my Apple TV remote. We can't find it anywhere. It's fun to think that an everyday accident is actually because of a cosmic conspiracy against me. Uh, another Stephen Kingism is Tolkien. Now, King loves his Tolkien and refers to Lois's house as a hobbit hole. Ed's reference to the Centurions reminds Ralph of Sauron's ring wraiths, fitting as the Crimson King is Stephen King's version of Sauron. You know, we have the ring itself play out. Atropos is a golem-like you know, character. So Tolkien is very much present here, um, which is important to note. Uh, number five is the nightmare. At one point, Ralph has a very awful nightmare. There's usually a character having a nightmare in each one of Stephen King's works. Number six, we have the elderly getting younger, uh, which is what happens to Ralph and Lois. And this was first explored by King with his failed TV, I'm sorry, TV series, The Golden Years. Number eight is black auras to signify death. Here, when a character's balloon string is cut, they're cocooned in a black death bag, and in the Green Mile, John Coffey is able to suck the sickness out of someone that manifests itself as tiny black insects. Number nine is our catchphrase. Stephen King loves his catchphrase, whether it's um, they float, they all float, um, you know, come here and take your medicine, uh, you know, don't you love that happy crappy? You know, King in each one of his books tends to have a character have a catchphrase, and here it's bun done can't be undone. Number 10 is the blank dash thing. As Ralph talks to the Crimson King, King refers to him as the mother dash thing, um, which is the clown thing, the werewolf thing, the vampire thing. King does this when a character is in between. Uh, shapes you know when it's morphing from one thing to the next and the number 11 is the main characters forgetting the events that led throughout the novel after beating the villain so this is what happened in it with the losers and this is what happens with ralph and lois after beating the crimson king after stopping atropos after stopping ed all right guys now it's time for our Easter eggs, and this novel is just full of Easter eggs. I'm, I don't think that I captured all of them, but I captured most of them. And the first, of course, and I've talked about already, is Derry. You know, this is a city that was first seen in It. It makes a brief appearance in Bag of Bones. We'll see it again in Dreamcatcher, Fair Extension, which is a novella in Full Dark, No Stars, and in 112263. So I mentioned sk-tours.com. So for those of you who want to visit the city that inspired Derry, which is Bangor, Maine, and take a tour, then please go to this website and contact Stu 
because Stu will take you on like a three hour tour. Yes, a three hour tour of um, of Bangor and you see everything like you will see the red apple in this book. You will see where Ralph Roberts lived because these are all physical locations that you can go to. King did not just make it up out of the blue. He based it on real streets. You'll walk down Harris Street. You'll walk down Witcham Street. You will see Up Mile Hill. You will go downtown. You will see all of the, the sites here in Insomnia, all of the sites in it. So if you are a Stephen King fan, then I strongly encourage you to go just soak up what inspires Stephen King and, and, and how he's so good at taking that mundane and everyday because it's it's just it's, it's an everyday city um, so someone had asked me on Instagram if if I think they live in Indiana if it's worth going to traveling from Indiana it depends on how much of a Stephen King fan you are because Stu has people from all over the world come Japanese um, you know uh tour guy came um he he said and they, they come from all over the world i mean the new line cinema representatives had come um for for it to get some references to to incorporate into the movie and so i mean if you are a massive stephen king fan then yeah i mean you really should um but if it's going to cost a lot of money i would recommend you spend at least a week um, not necessarily in Bangor, but in Maine. Um, spend, you know, a day or two in Bangor. And then, you know, you can drive up to Bar Harbor, which is just a beautiful town on, on the water. Uh, and there's a lot to do up there. You can go to Acadia National Park, which is beautiful. You can go to Cadillac Mountain, where the, uh, the, the sun hits. It's the, the first, what is it? It's the, basically when the sun rises... It's the first point that the, the sunlight hits in the northern hemisphere, I believe. Uh, or you can drive south to the, the beaches in, in, in southern Maine. So, I mean, yes, I mean, there's a lot to do in Maine, and I would recommend it. Um, so, I mean, if you're going to go, if you live further away and you're going to go to see Bangor and be a part of SK Tours, I would do it in the summer, and I would do it when you can experience Maine itself. Number two for Easter eggs is the Dairy Airport. It makes its first appearance here, and it will later be the setting for the Novella Fair extension. Number three is the Storm of 85. This is the storm that took place at the end of It, and it's mentioned here. Number four is Mike Hanlon himself, our famous and favorite librarian who is still working at the library. Number five is Secondhand Rose, Secondhand Clothes, which is where uh, Bill Denbro had found silver after all those years. Number six is Officer Nell. There's an Officer Nell who shows up here that has to be the son or grandson of its Officer Nell. The Barons are referenced along with the Kendisog. Uh, number eight is Inside View, which is the, uh, the, 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 the tabloid that was first seen in the Dead Zone and most recently seen in the short story The Night Flyer um, starring Richard Dees. Number nine is the Wino at Nybolt Street. In the park, Bill and Ralph encounter a Wino who mentions Nybolt Street. Ralph and Lois will later walk through Nybolt Street on the way to reach Atropos's lair. Number ten, like I said, Adrian Mellon. At one point, Ralph remembers what had happened to Adrian Mellon. Number eleven is Juniper Hill. Charlie Pickering was sent there. This is the mental institution where Henry Bowers had spent most of his life. Number twelve is the sewers. 
Uh, no one heads into the sewers, but King makes a point to mention the dangerously and unpleasantly tangled network of sewers, which has to be a nod towards the time that we spent with them in It. You know, I mean, at one point, Ralph sees a purple beam of light shoot from a manhole cover, suggesting that something still resides within the sewers. The fire at the black spot is mentioned. Lois makes plans to spend a time with a friend in Ludlow, which is the setting for Pet Cemetery. Number 15 is uh, Lachises tells Ralph and Lois that their involvement is Ka. At one point, Ralph feels like he is caught between the spokes of a great wheel, reinforcing his Ka is a wheel theme. And the fact that the novel is so symmetrical just feels like it just was a great revolution, which you know reinforces Ka is a wheel, which is that of cycles which was seen in it which is seen in the stand which is most pronounced in the dark tower series number 16 other worlds than these at one point one of the doctors said that life after death is to go to other worlds than these which of course is a shout out to the words that jake chambers had spoken in um the gunslinger Ben Hanscom, one of the losers, an architect, designs the city's new civic center after the old one had been destroyed in the pages of It. Number 18, specifically Ka-Tet is mentioned, so when a group of people come together, Ka-Tet. Number 19, Gage Creed. While in Atropos's lair, they find a um, little sneaker that belonged to a little boy named Gage Creed who died in the pages of Pet Cemetery. Number 20 is Magic Doors. When Ralph enters the porta potty, rather than seeing the back wall of the sandy can, he sees the main landscape from above. He's looking through one of the universe's magic doors, seen most famously in the Dark Tower 2, the drawing of the three. In fact, the first time Roland looked through one, he looked through the window of a flying plane as well. Number 21 is Butch Bowers. At one point, Ralph thinks of Butch Bowers, who happened to be the father of bully Ralph Bowers from the, I'm sorry, Henry Bowers from the pages of It. And number 22 is Deadlights. When the Crimson King is defeated, Ralph sees the Deadlights. So guys, that is all that I've got for the review itself. Please, if, if you ha still have not been convinced by my passion for this novel, please go out and reread it. Um, if you have read it and don't like it, or if you don't remember much of it, please go back. Um, and enjoy it. It really is a wonderful novel. It's one that King believes is he that he was trying too hard. I disagree. I think that there is just beauty in this novel. It's just a lot of fun. So I strongly recommend that you go out and read it. And if you have not done so already, feel free to write in um, at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and subscribe on iTunes and write a review. And um, next week, I will be moving to Rose Matter, in which King continues to explore these very fantastical concepts. He continues to explore the concepts of domestic abuse and violence against women. And um, stick around if you have finished the Dark Tower series. I'm going to get into a lot of Dark Tower spoilers in a bonus episode that's released the same time as this. So if you are Dark Tower fans, head on over to that because this is the first time we see the Crimson King. Um, there is a definitely a lot to talk about. And if you have finished the Dark Tower series, I think that you know some of the things that I will be talking about and I will be talking about it at length. So thank you everyone. So long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Countdown.